In this episode of the Guidewire podcast, I'm touching base with Dr. Rob Lampman, a hospitalist at UNC and member of the Fast Tracks Clinical Advisory Group, on his experiences managing COVID patients and the directions of hospital medicine post-COVID. Welcome to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation. We are the boots on the ground inside of healthcare working to uncover and solve high-impact, unmet medical needs. Welcome to the Guidewire Podcast. My name is Devin Hubbard. I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Rob Lantman, a hospitalist at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, thanks, Rob, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Devin. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and this is not your first rodeo with us uh, on Guidewire. Last year, actually just over a year ago, you were on the podcast. And at that time, I think it might have been a week or so after everything started to shut down here. And we were joined by a handful of your colleagues and one of my colleagues for a discussion about COVID-related things. And, and in hospital medicine, you see a lot of these patients when they first get there. And so anyway, first of all, if, I, if you don't mind, I want to revisit some of the conversation that we had last time. There were a few things that we discussed, and we were making conjectures and predictions about what things were going to be in short supply and making predictions about changes in practice, et cetera. So at the time, you know, masks and face shields were in short supply, but I want to ask you, oh, and disposable stethoscopes came up in the conversation. And I want to ask about those three things first. And I have a couple other things that that were kind of interesting, but well, first of all, what was the status of those from your perspective? I was on the other side doing mask design and trying to find ways of solving shortage problems for healthcare. But I don't think I got to talk to you between when we first when things first started going nuts and now about this, curious to hear your perspective from the physician side, and I might be able to flavor it with what was going on behind the scenes. You know, I would say on on the inpatient side, it felt like we were kind of living on the edge. It felt like some days we had enough N95s that fit, and then some days we didn't. So I, I happen to wear one that the 3M version is called an 1870 plus, and some weeks they had it and some weeks they didn't. And and honestly, I, it got to be kind of a joke for me because I normally have a little bit of a beard here, a little goatee. And, and uh, well, if we had the N95s, I would definitely shave it. And so I would say, guys, I'm not going to shave this next week because it's going to be a public health measure. I'm going to grow my beard back. I'm going to wear the cap or, you know, or the pap or whatever it is. And that way you would all get to wear the N95s. So I'll, I'll take it literally on the chin for you. But so that, that was a little bit dicey. I think people who wore more of the standard like 3M circular kind of greenish blue teal masks those people tended to be okay but for those of us who wore kind of the maybe we have the misshapen faces those of us with that problem it was kind of a week-to-week thing and you just you just didn't know the shields ended up being pretty much okay we were worried up front and it just seemed like everything from people going into hardware stores to whatever we 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 just suddenly had enough and i think there was a lot of 3D printing that was going on on the side or something. And, but it felt like those, those we tended to do okay. The surgical gowns also were kind of a up and down thing. So we, we ended up transitioning into OR gowns. Oh, yeah. The ones that you can re- reuse. Exactly. And that I think institutionally was really big. It simply because it just, we went from, losing every single piece of this to, okay, we're just going to wash it and reuse it. And I, I think institutionally that made a big difference. We also went to a hot zone containment area and I know different hospitals have done different things. You know, we, 
we basically just try to create these hot zones where it's like you go in and suddenly you're not having to don new PPE for every patient, but you're basically wearing the same PPE unless they have some other contempt, you know, MRSA, something like that. You would wear the same thing all through. And so that helped us tremendously. I think. I'm going to ask an ignorant question. I want to make sure I understand. When you say hot zone, you're, my head goes to this, like, when you go in, you're like exiting safety and it's everybody in that area is like contained. Is that, a, you know, I have these visions of like tents and like, you know, full on. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, like what happened in ET, right. Where they have the tunnels and all, yeah. they, you know, yeah. No, it, contained I, air it system. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was not nearly that cool. Really what we ended up doing it, basically we just would literally just tape off areas on the floor. And it's like, okay, you cross the line and you cross this imaginary barrier, almost like, you know, getting into the, into the end zone, right. You, you just, you cross the plane. Okay. You're in, and there were certain hallways. And so there would be maybe the tape on the floor and this section's hot and that section's cold. And you would have your nursing desks where it's like, okay, this surface is hot. This is not. And so you could put stuff into the hot zone and then pull it out. And so we, we ended up just really just conserving a ton that way. Did you guys reuse, or were you aware of, of N95 reuse? I don't think we did at UNC, to my knowledge. Maybe we did and they just never told us. And we just were like, oh, okay, it looks brand new. But to my knowledge, they saved them all. They clearly, people were working. I think, I don't know if, if you guys in Fast Tracks, if you guys were working on some of these things, but they were working on the protocols to sterilize them, to clean them and all. But we never ended up having to. We, I think we got really close. We just, like I said, we kind of lived right on the edge. I'll share the other side of this story. So yes, we were working on some of this stuff, in fact. And you mentioned a number of things that that I actually did touch. I didn't work on face shields, but I worked on the team, like the, the big team that was responsible for it. And there was another subgroup that did the majority of the work on the face shields. What I did was like those, you know, so you mentioned cappers. So I was with the group that did work on that. A lot of, I don't know if, did you notice a change in the, in the, the hoods that go around those at any point? All I knew is that I didn't know what size I was supposed to wear. In about December-ish, one of the we had monitors who watched us go in, and she goes, "Oh, you're wearing the wrong one. That doesn't fit." And I was like, "I've been wearing the same one for like eight months now. What do you <laughs> oh, mean?" Gosh. And uh, so I was like, "Oh, okay. I guess that's okay. Thanks." So I I know for a fact, and I don't know if these got used or not, but I know for a fact that we at one point were getting relatively low on the on the shields and the cuffs that go with the cappers and that we started manufacturing them locally because one of the teams that worked on that, pro- again, same team that we were working on with the masks. So it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Yeah. And, and another fun fact that I learned while working on masks is that just around 90% of people will fit into a standard N95. And then there's like 10%, which it sounds like you're in that wear a non-traditional, uh, I don't know what they call it. It's like the non kind of the round ones that everybody wears. And so, yeah, everybody, that's really funny because I was on the other side with the capper cuffs and everything like that. But the N95s, yeah, I don't know if they ever put them in service, but I do know that they were, they were sterilizing and we were not the only institution to do this in the area, but we, at one point, I'm, I know we had N95, they were using vaporized hydrogen peroxide is what we were using to, so they had these I don't know what they did at UNC, but I do know that at some places they basically had these shipping containers that rolled up and the shipping containers were these sort of contained VHP treatment. And you could just roll racks 
of N95s into them, run the VHP and then degas, and then you're good to go. I don't know if we ever did reuse. I do know that we got very close to running out of N95s, like, because I was the person who was working on that. And luckily at the 11th hour, we got some additional N95s, but there were some pretty crazy things happening. Well, I just knew all of the unit clerks would hide them. So you had to know the right unit clerk. You kind of had to be on friendly terms with them and they would give you two. There's like a black market for N95s inside though. <laughs> it really was. And like I said, you, like you had to know them. You kind of had to ask nicely. And, and it was kind of one of those like moments of like, you know, when you're growing up, your parents are like, Every, always treat everybody nice. You always treat everybody nice. And you're like, and then as an adult, you're like, I'm glad I always listen to my parents and always try to treat people nicely because if they didn't like me, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. Yeah. You got to win people over, right? <laughs> so moving along from masks, I got to ask you about something. So what, there was a comment made in our original podcast that in retrospect now, I chuckled at. And the comment was about stethoscopes. So we talked about disposable stethoscopes and there was frustration expressed by more than one provider about the using your fancy cardiology test stethoscope. And then suddenly you're like using a cheap plastic disposable one. And then it turns out at the time, the emergency department was running out of them or had run out and they were re- they were cleaning their stethoscopes. So I asked a question about the wipes, like, what about the wipes? And I don't remember if it was Chris or who it was that <laughs> she goes, luckily those aren't in short supply. Well, fast forward, I don't know, eight months or so. And I get a call <laughs> call from our administration. Hey, we're running out of wipes. What can you do to help us? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to know like, what things did you see on the hospital side, if any, that were unexpected? Things that like were shortages that were caused by other shortages or changes even that happened that maybe we didn't predict or that you wouldn't have expected? Were there things that came up that you can think of? Well, I mean, just uh, kind of thinking the holistically, I mean, the swabs or testing. Yeah. Oh, man, those were... Yeah, that was something that was unexpected. Inside the hospital, honestly, it, it seemed like we were playing whack-a-mole. And then it was just like, okay, we're worried about masks this week. Okay, we're worried about shields this week. Okay, we're worried about, like mentioned, like the, the, the capper shields and that cuff and all this week. And then, oh, this week, we're, we can't use the OR gowns anymore. anymore. So now you're going to put on the ones that look like trash bags. And it just felt like we just cycled through, like, okay, guys, this is the problem of this week. That's going to be really hard. And, you know, but we were, we were so fortunate in Orange County and Chapel Hill because honestly, we didn't take it nearly as hard as some other places because the community actually wore masks and to see like college kids, when the students were here running down the road in a mask and they're jogging, exercising in a mask. Yeah. When I see people run, I'm like, man, kudos to you. I'll just quit running. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm not a runner, but if I were a runner, I would not be able to handle that. Oh, totally. Every now and then I got the bug that I'm going to walk. I'm not going to use the elevator at all. And so I'll go from like the second floor, which of course is like our main concourse to like the seventh floor of our neuroscience hospital. And I get to the top and I'm just gasping and I'm like, oh, these masks. Oh, and then I just think, okay, look at these college kids and run around. I know I'm 20 years older, whatever plus than them now, but I'm like, no, I can do it. I can do it. If they can jog, I can do this. So what other things did you notice that were different or unexpected, if any? You know, some of the things that jump out to me weren't, they weren't necessarily even the in supplies. We had a lot of organizational change. Yeah. I want to hear about this actually, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was what changes were made at the, at the organizational and operational levels and which ones do you think will stick around? 
Well, we initially piloted like this whole idea of trying to use like virtual medicine, like teaming up two docs when people were rounding. So one person would round and, and the other guy would sit on speakerphone, like on their cell phone in the pocket, basically. And so they would interview the patient, examine them. And we would basically act as a scribe who could also put in orders and do all these things. And that that kind of went away, I guess, relatively quickly. But that was definitely something we tried early on. For us, though, you know, we blew up our schedule. We had a like a pulmonary floor service that is, has still not come back because the pulmonologists are still so heavily slammed towards the ICU. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that it might be coming back this next academic year. And right now it's funny, but organizationally, you know, there's the old, this, the saying of, you know, don't waste your, your crisis. Right. And I feel like organizationally, that's, that's kind of where we're living now. I, I don't think leadership wants to say that out loud, but I feel like that's kind of what's happening where it's, there's a lot of organizational changes. Some that were really good, like virtual care, you know, which we struggled in the hospital to figure out what to do with, but I certainly know the outpatient basis is huge. But there's other, I think, just other structural changes that have been implemented. Basically, it's kind of like, like I said, you know, don't waste your crisis. So things that have been, that we're always like, oh, this is kind of clunky. Oh, this is not really optimal. All that stuff got blown up in the middle of this. And then now, instead of kind of going back to what we were doing, you can just see there's an, a willingness, I would say, on leadership's part. I think, I think everybody else is kind of getting pulled along. But there's a willingness to try to make these institutional changes that were considered too high a barrier. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, on my side of things, I certainly saw folks moving like the one you bring up with the telehealth that obviously changed it it when, when reimbursements got behind it. Right. And that was a big deal. I'm curious to see what the long-term with that is. Well, I was actually going to even add uh, like the hospital at home. So we're calling it acute care at home, but that's, that's the other thing that's kind of growing out of this because I think it really exposed the fact the bed capacity. So in, in states like North Carolina, where we have a highly regulated healthcare bed capacity situation in the state, and we're having massive growth, you know, the population growth of the town that I live in, a little bedroom community outside of Chapel Hill called Apex, and it has grown from about 20,000 people 20 years ago to pushing 50,000 now. So the, the infrastructure during the hospital, number of hospital beds is not. And so hospitals like ours, others around the region, have been struggling with capacity for some time. And I think it exposed, in many cases, the capacity limitations. And so it's pushed places like, I think, a lot of health systems in like North Carolina to really look at these these hospital at home models. And that's going to be virtual. And I think, I'll be honest, I think that's going to be something that is going to drive some new technology, both adoption, but I think also, to be honest, I think miniaturization. I, I think because you look at... um lab draws, you know, well, can you, can you really get a phlebotomist to go out to everybody's house, you know, or an EMT? I mean, they're busy, right? And that's kind of what you would need. And chest x-rays at home, well, that's fine. You need an entire truck and then somehow you need to get it into the person or, you know, so I almost look upon it kind of like we've gone from, you know, if you're an Isaac Asimov fan, like there was the galaxy where, right, the galactic empire, where everything was huge, right? And then what did foundation do? They shrunk everything. Right. And then I kind of feel like when you look at some of these technologies, I think what you're going to start to see where I think the opportunity might be is how do you shrink them, package them, make them easier? And in the case of something like lab draws, how do you make them so that you don't need a phlebotomist to be able to get that? That's a really interesting thought. Two comments. First of all, I used to work EMS. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. 
Yeah, I was an EMT back when they had the intermediate. I don't even know if they do that anymore. I was an intermediate over in Wake County. And um, I can tell you at the time, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but you know, funding is always a challenge, right? That's an interesting proposal that you make, right? Could you imagine for a moment that like, okay, your emergency services, but if we're being clear, I mean, fire departments and EMS don't spend 100% of their time on the road most days. Some days there's craziness, right? And what an interesting way of supplementing. If you could bill for services like phlebotomy or x-ray, right? Imagine if you had a mobile x-ray on, well, first of all, emergency services wise, if you had a mobile x-ray and like, it would be one thing if you were interpreting, which I don't think EMS personnel should be doing because they're not trained to. But it'd be another thing if you're if EMTs were trained to take an X-ray or an X-ray series in a safe way that could be used by a radiologist to track progress or make clinical recommendations. I mean, one of the things that is interesting about fractures in the field, which is this is way off topic, is that you can't you can't really diagnose them unless you've got a bone sticking out. As an EMT, you're just taught, okay, let's just stabilize this and make sure they've got circulation still <laughs> and get them hospital because the you can't, until you've got an x-ray, be absolutely certain how severe or even if there is a fracture. That's an interesting suggestion, right? Like what if, that would be an interest, a very interesting model in my head. The other thing, and I think this is a bigger, bigger thing that I, I want to say COVID may have flushed this out a little bit more over the last, I don't know how many years this has been happening, but just as urban areas grow and as the techniques in the hospital improve, the propensity is for there to be higher acuity patients in the hospital, right? So you get sicker and sicker people, but then suddenly you have a pandemic where it's like, now what? (laughs) And I think your point about pushing a hospital, I want to say that COVID probably just accelerated things. I always had in the back of my head, like, what are we going to do when we run out of space and the patients are so sick, we have nowhere to put them, right? What do you do with a patient that comes in, but that's a lower acuity? How do you triage that? How do you manage it? And the hospital at home might be an interesting way of offloading some of that from somewhere to be able to accommodate higher acuity patients in more hospital settings. But man, you got me thinking about this. I I agree. I think home health and telemedicine is going to be a really hot area in the future. Yeah. How do you make that portable? Like, If you want to take those high acuity patients though, and it, you know, and the reason that we hospitalize people, it's not necessarily because, oh, at this moment, there's nothing that we can do immediately, say in a clinic or something. It's because of the what if moments. And that's the thing that I'm still struggling with, with the hospital at home is what do you do in those what ifs, you know, and how do you prevent them? How do you diagnose it in a timely way so that, you know, frankly, so that EMS doesn't have a real problem when they show up? Man, what an interesting thought though. I mean, it almost seems to me like one of the things to do, if you were, if one were to implement a model like this, would be to take a survey of what patients or types of patients would be easiest to transition, or what kind of services can we provide outside the hospital that would alleviate the demand. And you know, actually, well, I'll, I'll come back to this in a second, but because once you have that, if that's even possible. <laughs> Then, then I think you can build the model out because because one of the things, again, at the risk of sounding, uh, the, see, I know enough to get myself in trouble. So what I'm about to say is probably not entirely accurate, but I would guess that EMT training in general, emergency technician training hasn't changed drastically in a long time. I mean, there's been plenty of iteration 
And certainly the newest practices are brought in. But I don't think in like fundamentally the practice of emergency medicine in the field has changed substantially because it's always focused on, for the most part, just prolonging <laughs> until you get to the hospital, which is where definitive care is provided. Well, an an algorithm of care, right? I mean, I think longstanding, there's been like algorithms and then it's like, as you get higher up the EMT ladder and training, it's like you get to access more algorithms. And I would go a step further. I'd say all the medicine has been like that. You know, what I do as a physician, I might utilize some slightly different technology like the EMR, right? And looking at images remotely, um, MRI, CTs, whatever it might be. But fundamentally, I'm still just walking into a room and seeing a patient and talking to them and getting a history. It's funny, though, with all of those things in place, some of that we're almost locked into because of, and this is totally a tangent from device development, but I think it's because we're legally locked into our licenses. Like a physician is defined by this, a nurse is defined by this, you know, a respiratory therapist is defined by this. And I think it'll be interesting, though, as we develop these hospital home models, and honestly, if we are able to kind of break through some of the, because I think you're going to have to, I think you're going to have to change the model on how we deliver some of this care. And I think it's going to have to create some flexibility. You know, that's really interesting because when I think about scope of practice, EMS might be a really serendipitously lucky area for this kind of innovation because EMTs, last I checked, practice under the license of their medical director, who's a physician, which in theory Again, this is something I don't know a lot about, but in theory, in my head, that opens up the door to make changes in scope of practice maybe even easier than something like a nurse or a nurse practitioner who is credentialed and practices without, right? They're they're not operating as far as I know. Nurse practitioners can, depending on the state, operate independently of physicians. Yeah. PAs universally operate under a physician. And all of it is constantly in flux and very political. So that's what I know. Regardless, I do think depending on the type of structure, it might be not as difficult. <laughs> Again, that's, <Yeah>. that's <laughs> that, of course, it's easy to say, hard to do. <laughs> but I think that a state that is, because it, it would probably take some changes in state licensing laws, but I think that states that have kind of gone through it with COVID right now and have seen, have to have seen this emergence of this hospital at home model, those might be the places where you're going to see the local governments more willing to say, okay, we'll allow some creation of some pilot programs because gosh, we got really hammered. And yeah, we had these tent hospitals. You know, we, UNC had a tent hospital out in the Western part of the state. And I don't know how many of those there were in the state overall, but certainly we, you know, we all saw pictures of them on the news in various places. And certainly around the world, you know, the, these things are going on. I do wonder too, how many of these things might be harder to get done in the U.S. because of our, the FDA and various, you know, structures, but maybe you could take to a place like Brazil where healthcare has been more difficult, but where there's a need and you can, you know, maybe institute some easy, easier changes and easier, um, easier ways to help people and make, make those changes. Yeah. I have a friend who works in the policy side of things and in Washington, I, I want to get them on the podcast sometime soon to talk about this exact subject because I think COVID and just pandemic thought in general has changed. I think it's really disrupted the policy thinking, but I, I don't know. I don't have a great sense of like what the direction or trajectory of things is, but I want to, I have another question for you. 
that is related to stressors caused by a pandemic. So you mentioned testing earlier. Did you notice any like changes in turnaround time or anything on your labs? Oh yeah, it was night and day. Um, so just to put out, I, I think I did the first admission of a rollout COVID at UNC. It was actually a healthcare worker who had come in with a young person came in with pneumonia. And I think they had like a, you know, various things about them where you're like, well, I guess it, she doesn't really have the things that I would think, but at the same, like not unknown exposure, but it's so early on, nobody knew. Yeah. No one was tracing anything. Yeah. Yeah. And so it literally, just to get through the bureaucratic part of being in a hospital, right. It took me nine hours to get through all the various steps between like multiple, like, I think I had to do six phone calls to the state, you know, talk to various people because at the time you had to like register everybody and then everybody was afraid of them. So I like had to go in and see this person a couple of times and do all the stuff. And then I think I got banished to my spare bedroom for like two weeks after that. <laughs> um, and yes. um, cause everybody was like super afraid, but ultimately I think the test didn't come back for like three days and it was fine. She was negative, you know, it was okay. And this person was just like, they were so obviously seeing all these patients and, and asking, Oh, well, who kind of patients are you seeing? And it's like, Oh, these are going to compromise people. And I'm like, Oh, this could be really bad. You know? So it, we went from that where we're setting up and then really we've gotten down to both the rapid that might be 30, 45 minutes. It almost seems like it takes more time just to get a sample to this there, you know, and to get it off the tray. Right. But then I think reality though, I mean, four hour turnaround time for us, is pretty, pretty par for the course, you know, and I think it might be getting lower than that, but it kind of went in fits and spurts. You know, there were times where it was like, we were living on the edge with the rapid test and it was you know, my, my, uh, my division chief is really good about sending out these updates. And so, um, it would be like, okay, well this week we only have like 30 of these tests left. So use them sparingly, you know, use them who you think you need to. And then otherwise it'll be 24 hours before we get the test back. So what about other labs? I mean, like, you know, just standard things that you might draw out normally, you know, like counts, et cetera, you know, just like blood, like what any lab, do they get delayed? Not really that I can recall. I think maybe we had some people out at various times and that might've just changed up the workflow. I would honestly tell you our lab is great. The The thing we struggle with is actually, um, unfortunately, if there's like a call out for phlebotomy of all things, but that's, that's an organizational issue, you know, but I, I give our lab or molecular micro lab people and uh, our general lab leadership, a lot of credit. They, they really did steadily make improvements and keep things moving along. And I know, though, when I talk to other hospitals, so one part of one of my jobs is I work on our transfer. I work with our transfer center. So when I would talk to other hospitals, though, you know, we would be down and we'd have like, oh, we're flush with these like, you know, 45 minute tests and we're getting our turnaround time four hours otherwise. Right. And I'm talking to these other guys and they're like, well, it's going to take me a week to get it back, you know, because I get to send it off to the state. And so it was a real patchwork, I think, of like the haves and the have nots. And there were a lot of have-nots for a long time, much longer than I think we all like to think about, you know, sitting in a big academic center. But yeah, that was, that was real, continued to be a real problem for a lot of people for a long time. Yeah. I think COVID uniquely highlighted a lot of disparities in access and quality of everything. (laughs) All right. Last question I want to ask you uh, before we sort of wrap it up here. Obviously, there's been some pretty big changes as a result of COVID. What do you think going forward, related or not related to COVID? Like, what do you think is next? What is in the future? I mean, you mentioned home hospital, but you know, what other things do you see coming? That I really think is going to be one of the major changes in the 
face of medical care in the United States. I think it's just a matter of the payers all getting behind it. And Medicare has already put some money that direction, but I think other payers getting Blue Cross, uh, United Healthcare, players like that, once they fall on board, I think you'll really, really see that take off. But I think that what I really think is going to end up happening is I think there are going to be, particularly the people that took care of COVID patients are, you know, I will say in hospital medicine and academic center hospital medicine, there is a kind of like a new desire to kind of like want to redefine who we are. In our group, we have um, a lecture series that just kind of, not really a lecture, but a, um, a conference series within our group that just got started. They're calling it the, the unicorn series. And they're calling it the unicorn series, not because somebody's a little daughter thought it was like the best idea ever. It was actually because unicorns are like, right, these mythical creatures that, you know, you know, you never really find, of course, right? And not really, never really, you just don't find them, right? Well, that, as a hospitalist, that's kind of the joke about an academic hospitalist, right? We all do clinical work, but there's not a lot of people doing like big clinical trials. And I think that is something that our hospitalist division is is kind of having a little bit of soul searching about this. And I think more broadly, not just leadership, but I, I think more broadly, people are thinking about, gosh, you know, like what else can we do? And I think in the out, out general medicine world, the amount of change and the, the rapidity of questions that came up about clinical practice, I think has changed the general medicine vibe in overall and, you know, new virtual medicine, et cetera. And I'm hopeful what that will mean is that there will be changes in how we practice and maybe some new research avenues, new, um, new things along those lines that'll help take things that have been annoyances for those of us in more general hands-on patient care. And, and help turn them around, you know, and help change them so that we, we really start addressing it instead of rather just sitting on the sideline and waiting for the specialist to do it all. That's really exciting. I think from a device perspective, that sounds encouraging because you guys in hospital medicine touch such a wide variety of patients. And the problems that we've worked on or had the privilege of working on with you are broad and diverse. And I think Clinical trials gather data that helps us understand everything from, you know, the way some an intervention works to just the general disease progression, et cetera. And I think that's the kind of information that really makes a strong case for certain interventions and devices. And obviously for us, that's, that's important. So that's exciting. I think that we should leverage that over in Fast Tracks. And, and I also forgot to mention at the beginning that you're on our clinical advisory group and we obviously value your perspective because of how many different types of patients you touch, you know? Yeah. And so, so I, I should probably bring it with it, the caveat that I do have the bias that I'm, I'm interested in this stuff. This stuff kind of <laughs> makes me, I, you know, I, I kind of wake up in the morning thinking, could that be an idea? And I'll send a, a, a note off to, to Andy and, you know, like, thanks, Rob, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> well, that's the reason you're on the clinical advisory group is because you think like that. And like <laughs> the whole point of the clinical advisory group is to get people who think about changing the way we do things to provide input on what we're doing. But either way, I mean, the unicorn series seems to me like a fundamental shift and that's exciting. It is. And I will say from a device perspective, what I see the things that become home runs for people like me are things that have versatility. So something that it's not, you know, if you're a gastroenterologist, you're looking at gastroenterology issues, but you know, as a hospitalist, you know, like I'm thinking shortness of breath, right? And so, well, there's a lot of things that can cause that. Some are cardiac, some are pulmonary, some are muscular, neuro neurologic. There's a variety of things. I mean, and the, and the success, say, of like the technology, like a chest X-ray, which has been around forever, right? 100 years plus, because it can help with the versatility of problems. 
it is not a hammer for a single nail. It's more of a, a more of a Swiss Army knife. Everybody uses it for everything, right? Yeah. Well, I look forward to continuing to pick your brain about this in the in the Fast Tracks group. Thanks, Rob, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and for following up on on the subject, like over a year later, it's been interesting to look back on it. And I'm very interested to see how things go forward in terms of policy and in terms of you know home health and all these things that we've just talked about. So, yeah, Rob, thanks again for joining me today on po- on the Guidewire podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to our clinical advisory group meeting this week. Yeah. All right. Look forward to. All right. Thanks for having me on. I hope you've enjoyed learning a bit more about the anticipated directions of hospital medicine post-COVID. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, please send a message to guidewire at unc.edu. Follow us on Twitter at GuidewirePod. For more content like this, consider subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite streaming service. As always, I'm your host, Devin Hubbard, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about our exciting activities, opportunities, and team by subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite listening service. If you have identified an unmet medical need or are interested in learning more about our process, visit us at guidewire.unc.edu. You have been listening to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation.